0: Well, just a few announcements this morning. The first one... um, Let's see. I thought I had it on there. Okay. So Tuesdays, starting in October, uh, every other Tuesday, so October 12th, the 26th, November 9th, and the 23rd, we're actually going to have prayer meetings uh, from 6 to 7 p.m. at Jesse and Vika's house. So if you don't know where that's at, uh, feel free to ask someone. Um, but I think it'll be a good time. Just going to devote an hour to pray and to seek the Lord on the behalf of our church and on behalf of our community and just see what God has for us in this next season. Um, there is an online women's conference that will be hosted here October 8th. And That's a Friday evening and then a Saturday from 8 to 4. And there's different sessions. But if you want to schedule, there's one on the counter in the foyer. And there's also a sign-up sheet. Um, There will be food provided on Saturday. Um, So if you're interested, uh, please sign up, uh, grab a flyer. If you have more questions, uh, ask my wife and she will be able to let you know the details. But most of them are on the flyer. Um, October 10th, which will be a Sunday that same weekend. Uh, we're going to have our annual fall get-together. Um, it's Sunday, October 10th. Um, there will be chili provided. You can bring a side or a dessert. Uh, bring your family. Bring a friend. Um, head out to the Pursleys right after second service. So in historically, we've had it in the evening, but this time what we're going to do is right after second service, we'll all caravan out there. Um, there's going to be um, some activities to do, games, and then usually we kind of hang out, eat chili. If it's cold enough, we have a bonfire, so we'll see. Um, I think there's going to be a pumpkin patch, so if you want to get a pumpkin and be able to decorate it, you'll be able to do it there. So um, more details as they become available. And then I think that is all for our announcements today. All right, turn in your Bibles uh, to Exodus in chapter 14. And if you were with us last last time, uh, we are studying through the book of Exodus, and we saw that God, uh, by his mighty arm, stretched out and brought his people out of the nation that they were slaves to for over 400 years. And when he brought them out, uh, he plundered the Egyptians by their hand. Yeah, they basically just had to ask their neighbors for their silver and gold, and they handed it to them. So this was no uh, deliverance in and of themselves. Uh, they had to go through essentially what was called the first Passover. We saw the Passover lamb was selected and then kept with them, and then it was killed. Then they put the, the blood of this animal on their doorposts and on the lentils. And as they left, having trusted in the blood of the lamb, they got to leave, and then the firstborn in every house that did not trust in the blood of the lamb was killed. He, he died in this plague. And so um, that was last week's study. But as we look at this, uh, we see that this week they have been led out of Egypt. They're on the way to their final destination, which is the land of Canaan, which will eventually become modern-day Israel. And as they're being led out of this nation, they're being led by a physical presence a physical manifestation of the Lord, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we talked about all the reasons that that would be the case, but this is how he chose to lead them through the wilderness. And he's going to do this for the next 40 years as they travel around in unbelief. They'll remain in the wilderness, but he will continue to lead them. But as he's leading them today, it says in chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea." He says, "For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land; the wilderness has closed them in, and then I will harden Pharaoh's heart." so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his army, and the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. And so God tells Moses, I want you to take the children of Israel, I want you to turn from the direction you're going, and I want you to camp in this particular place. And what he's doing is he is setting a trap for Pharaoh, who is hellbound on rebelling against God. And he says, I'm going to set you in this spot. And when I set you in this spot, Pharaoh is going to be hardened and he's going to pursue you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that does not sound heartwarming to me. So wait, you saved us. You've taken us out of Egypt and now you're going to let Pharaoh pursue us. But notice what he says there in verse 4. I'm going to do this. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue you, but I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. That's his purpose in this trial for the Israelites. So he sets a trap. He says, I want you to turn around and essentially the way that they're going to maneuver as the Israelites, is they're going to put themselves in a place where it looks like they're, they're kind of lost. None of you have ever been lost, but when you get lost and, and your wife or your husband says, hey, uh, maybe we should stop for directions, if that's ever happened, or you, in our day, what do we do? We Google it. Okay, how do I find out? I, I, and I told you a story last week, or maybe I told some of you a story where I got lost and we had to just stop and recalculate. But here, God wants it to look like they're lost. He wants it to look like the wilderness has overwhelmed them so that their enemies will pursue them so that they will know that he's God. And we'll see how that plays out. So God's purpose here is to show the Egyptians, I am the Lord. And he's going to use, by the way, their own lusts and desires to get them to come out of Egypt and pursue the Israelites. And in James chapter 1, and verse 12, it actually says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, those who bear up under it and are not given into it. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But look at this. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away, not by God, but he's drawn away by his own desires. What is it that gets you into trouble? It's not God giving you circumstances you can't take. It's your own sinful desires within you that have appetites. And he says there, drawn away by his own desires and enticed titillated excited verse 15 then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death and so this is a classic example because the pharaoh desires power he desires to be lord and in particular he desires to be the lord over these israelites So I have another translation for you there on the slide. When a man is tempted, it is his own passions that carry him away and serve as a bait. Your passions are bait to tempt you to go places that God does not have for you. But what we see in verse 5, that as Pharaoh pursues Israel to take them back, it says back there in Exodus 14, it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? I find that interesting because just a couple chapters ago, they knew exactly why they let them go because keeping them in bondage, being a curse to the Israelites actually cursed them. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And the Egyptians were experiencing the fulfillment of that promise. As they were a curse to the Israelites, God was judging them and cursing them with these plagues. And so it says there, So he made ready his chariot, and he took his people with them. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and, and all the chariots of Egypt, with captains over every one of them, and the Pharaoh hardened at the heart of Pharaoh. Excuse me, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pi Hahiroth. Before Baal Zephon. And so Pharaoh pursues Israel to take them back. He seems to have a very short term memory. He realizes he's given up power, which he loves more than anything. Anything that you love more than God is a desire that will always entrap you. But realizing he's given up power, he quickly re- regrets his decision and he takes all of what he has of his might and he pursues them. But the question I have for you, and maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't, where would they get horses from? Didn't all their livestock get destroyed in the plagues? And in chapter 9, the the hailstones were so large that all of the animals that remained out in the field were killed. But I want to show you something that's intriguing to me. In Exodus chapter 9, it says there that in verse 20, he who feared the word of the Lord, he warned them, I'm going to plague you with these large hailstones, but here's how you prepare. If you don't want to be destroyed by these hailstones, take your servants and take your livestock out of the field. So he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So I love this because we expect the Israelites to heed the word of the Lord. They've seen his past faithfulness, but among the the Pharaoh's servants, among the Egyptians, the worldly people, there were several, apparently at least 600 horses worth or so that feared the word of the Lord. They took heed to it and they took action. They they took their animals into the houses, into the, the animal houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field, and we know they were destroyed. And so uh, we see there that they have horses still because the only reason they have the ability to pursue God's people is because they listen to God's word. He he essentially, because of his wisdom, gave them the ability to chase down his beloved. Why? <laughs> like. What grace, what mercy. So verse 10, "'When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, "'and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. "'So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. "'Then they said to Moses, "'Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness?' Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told? We warned you, Moses. He says, um, didn't we say to you, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should all die in the desert or the wilderness. Wouldn't it have been easier for us to just live hard lives in Egypt and, and then, but we would still get to stay alive. And the answer is, no, it wouldn't have been easier. But in the moment, it feels like it, right? Maybe I'm different than you, but maybe some of you have had these times in your own walk with Jesus where it seemed like it was simpler just to walk with the ways of the world because then at least I didn't get picked on or we would call persecuted or looked at differently or looked at like a weirdo because what do you mean you can't just go do this with us? what do you mean that we, I don't get it. And and we kind of get criticized because we won't just go with the flood of dissipation and just let it rip. We, we have scruples, we have morals. And so to that, to the culture, we look like those that are holding back progress. And yet what we find is that God has wisdom in all of that. And it's wise for us to take heed to him. But what I want to point out is that though God is trapping the Pharaoh and kind of drawing him away by his own lust, at the same time, this situation could make the Israelites feel like they're trapped. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but picture this. You're in a valley where there's only one way in and one way out by foot. There's two large mountains on both sides, and there's one pass between them. You're in a plane, and you're camping with two to three million of your closest friends, their children, all of your animals, your, your whole life. You can't travel nimbly, by the way, when you're carrying all your stuff. And then the only thing that's on the other side of that view as you turn around is a sea. A sea. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I don't know about you, but it's never really... Uh, most of my days start with me thinking, hey, Today's gonna be a new day. God's mercies are new every day. And I've all I've got to do today is this, 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 and this. Maybe you're not a list person. I like to do lists. I like to accomplish things. That's what makes me feel productive. But as I wake up in the morning and I'm drinking that cup of Folgers and I'm thinking I've got this day and it's gonna be better than yesterday. That felt like a failure. I'm optimistic. And I start to get things done. And then next thing you know, my phone starts going off. Bzz, bzz. And I've got a text message. And I've got a phone call. And I've got emails stacking up. And then other people have things they expect of me. And then the kid spills something. And then before you know it, I'm caught up in this flood of pressure. And it's not, not that each one of the individual things are even that bad, but it just stacks up. And the stress level rises and then you realize that there's long-term goals you haven't even started on yet. And I'm supposed to read this book for this thing and I'm studying this for this class and, or whatever else you have going on in your life. And by the end of the day, I not only didn't get my list done, but then I also have all these other things that have stacked up while those things were waiting. And then big emergencies have come up and I feel completely overwhelmed. Now I'm not caught between, by the way, an Egyptian army and the Red Sea but in the moment, it feels like it feels like th- this is the day that's going to break me. So the one way they had to get out of this little valley was the pass between the mountains. And when they looked up to the pass between the mountains, there was an army pursuing them on chariots. And the chariots looked like I'm ahead of myself, apparently. The chariots looked like this. They had horses drawing them. They were modern day tanks. That's that's what they had for tanks. They had a tank driver. He was the one whipping the horse, making him run. And then they had a guy that was doing this. He was riding in a chariot and he was a gunner, essentially. He was a weaponry guy. And he was slicing away at the air, just waiting for something to get in the way of his blade. And so as the, the Israelites look up, And they're thinking, how are we going to get out of here? Here comes the Pharaoh with 600 chariots, 600 tanks. This means sudden death, right? My circumstances mean I'm going to die. There is no foreseeable way out of this. God led me out of Egypt to die right here. And so here's how the children of Israel react as the Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Good step, right? I'm in a, I'm in a hard spot. I can't deliver myself. This is what I need. I need to cry out to the Lord. The word there, cry out means to appeal, to send out a distress signal, to ask for help. God saved us for a relationship with Him so that we would have Him at our disposal to do what He's called us to do. He wants us to cry out to Him, and I would say to you that feel like you're hemmed into a situation that is impossible and is deadly is a situation that causes you to cry out to the Lord to the Lord. Really a bad thing. Is it really? No, it's a wonderful thing, because you might have been silent between you and Jesus for a long time before this circumstance. And guess what? He wants to hear from you. And so if you're not going to talk to him, he might allow circumstances, so you'll need him. And we do. Verse 11 through 12 says that they complained to their leader. Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die here in the wilderness? Didn't we tell you that we it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? just leave us alone. Leave things status quo. It probably felt like that was true in the moment. It would it would be better for us to remain slaves. But it just because it feels true in the moment doesn't mean that it is. So verse 13, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Good advice. Fear not, Jesus would say to his disciples, for I am with you. Here here he's saying to the Israelites through Moses, don't be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see them again no more forever. This affliction that's coming at you, very real affliction, it's temporary and you're going to survive it. And so he says... Don't be afraid. Stand still. Now, let me ask you, I'm going to put you back in that circumstance. When your life gets busy, when you feel overwhelmed, when you know you can't do it and you just want to holler, and maybe some of you do, maybe some of you get so upset you yell at your family, I've done it. And you're just pressured and that's how you deal with it. Here's the reality. When God says, be still, what's the last thing you want to do when you're pressured? You don't want to stand still. You want to go get some stuff done so that the pressure goes away. But what Moses says to them is, don't be afraid, be still, and see God's salvation. Because we can't see God's salvation while we're trying, busy trying to save ourselves. We can't. We can't. We think that the only way anything in this life can ever get accomplished is if I'm moving, and that's a lie from the pit. It just is. And so he says, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish, not you. He will accomplish today in your sight, and you shall see no more again these threats. The Lord, verse 14, will fight for you, and you'll get to keep your peace you shall hold your peace. So the question is, how do I maintain peace in the midst of that kind of pressure? Now, compare your pressure, which is very real, to the pressure we're reading about. It might feel like an Egyptian army's got a, a knife at your throat and chasing you with chariots, but they don't, right? So our light and momentary affliction in comparison with what they're experiencing really? If God can take care of them in this, if he's been faithful to them in that situation, what is your plight in comparison to that? Is it deadly? Now, it might be overwhelming, and this is not to make little of your problems or my problems, but what I'm saying is if God can deliver from this physical problem, how much more your spiritual problem? How much more your practical daily problem? And so the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So they get to hold their peace by not being afraid, by trusting, by standing still and watching the Lord save them. He will accomplish it. Uh, The threat you see today. So I have there for you Isaiah 26, and I'm just going to read Isaiah 26 verse three, because it's one of my favorite verses where is it? I had it marked. I even cheated. There we go. Isaiah 26, verse 3. He says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because that one who has their mind fixed on you trusts you. And what's funny is at the beginning of that chapter in Isaiah, it says there in that day, this song, it's a song of worship this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Future tense. They're going to sing in that day when God does what He promised. You will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed upon you, Lord, because that person trusts you. He says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. For He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city, He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. And so in Philippians, we have a New Testament version of basically the same teaching. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes to the Philippian church and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, Again, I will say, Rejoice rejoice so i believe and this is just my thoughts this is my commentary that if the israelites found themselves in their plight that we read about today and they would have worshiped the lord they would have renewed their strength and the resolve to trust him now no doubt god delivered them anyway but i believe that victory just like we sung in that song is had when we sing before we're delivered does that make sense we're confessing, I trust you, before he's proven himself to be able to deliver us in the future. And it gives peace to the soul when we confess and we sing, Lord, you're God, you're good, you are faithful in this, this, and this. I trust you to move forward. Help me to trust you. I believe, help my unbelief. And so, um, he keeps us in perfect peace. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is with us. He's here. He's near. He's at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which doesn't make sense, the peace of God that surpasses knowledge will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So peace is actually what guards our hearts and our minds in the middle of the unknown. And so he says, don't be afraid, be still and know. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now, most of us probably don't struggle with praying too much. We probably struggle more with not praying enough. But once you have prayed and the Lord has given you direction, don't stick around in the prayer room. Move forward with confidence. He says to Moses, why do you cry to me right now? This is the time to move. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. So he says, take steps. And then he says, make a way move forward, take a step. And as they took steps, he divided the sea. The children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Can you imagine being Moses, hearing those words? I'm sorry, what? Uh, Did I hear that correctly? We're going to walk through the sea on dry ground. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, Everybody move forward. You know, like sometimes that's how faith works. God tells us to do something that doesn't make sense. And then his peace guards our hearts and minds with a peace that passes understanding. Because if you try to understand everything God tells you to do, you won't move in time. You'll get in the paralysis of analysis. So he says, move forward. They're going to move forward on dry ground through the sea. That's what forward is. Which way is forward? And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Remember, that's the purpose. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And so the question that many skeptics and higher critics have to say is they say that when you translate the word Red Sea, it actually means reed sea. So it's like a marsh, like a shallow swamp. And so God delivered them through a marsh, big deal. It was only waist high because there are portions of the Red Sea that are only waist high. And the problem with that though, is that if he did in fact deliver them on dry ground through a marsh that was only waist high, then the question becomes, how in the world did he drown a 600 chariot army in this shallow marsh? That's more miraculous than anything. And we'll see that that's what he's going to do. But I believe because the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 9 verse 26 that this very location is where King Solomon kept his fleet of sailboats, his merchant ships. And if you've ever seen a merchant ship, they're not usually the small ones. You know, nowadays, we have the ones that get stuck in the Suez Canal, but their merchant ships were very large. They would go across the sea to get these fine linens and clothings and spices. They were large ships made for the big ocean. And so in First Kings chapter 9, verse 26, this very location is where Solomon would port his merchant ships. And so we know it's not a marshland, that it was, in fact, sea like we would think of it that has to be uh, miraculously moved for them to go through, especially on dry land. And so verse 19, here's what God did. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them, and he stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Uh, God's running a screenplay. So he's getting ready for them to offensively move and cross Red Sea. But in the meantime, he is in fact going to screen them from being attacked by the Israelites because it says there it was a cloud and darkness to the one to the Egyptians. It was cloud and darkness. It was meant to keep them hidden away from the Egyptians. And it gave light by night to the other. So the the night light was left on for the Israelites. He literally cared for them like his own children. So that the one did not come near the other all night long. He protected them in the night watch. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were in fact divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. The waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, spoiler alert, they're going to make it across, the Israelites. Pharaoh's army is going to be drowned. He's going to let go of the water And the water that was parted to make a way of salvation for the Israelites, that same location that they walked across on dry land will be the tomb that God digs up and buries the Egyptians in. That's what's going to happen. To those who trust the Lord, his way of salvation, Jesus, he's the chief cornerstone. He becomes the bedrock of who we are. But to those who rebel against God... He becomes a a rock of stumbling and of offense. He becomes their judge. He is, in fact, Lord and Savior. He loves the world so much that he gave his son so whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's amazing. But to those who reject him, he will become their undoing. He will judge them eternally, righteously with his wrath. He is, in fact, the God of wrath, and he is the God of mercy. You get to choose which one that he is for you. He doesn't force you to follow him. But what we see here is that the Lord becomes what they need. He's a shadow that hides them. He's the light that leads them in salvation. The Lord goes before them. He prepares a way for their escape. And at the same time, he prepares the burial ground for his enemies. And in Psalm chapter 34, The writer of the psalm says this in verse 4, and this would be attributed, I would say, to the Israelites in this story. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him, and the Lord delivers them. And so what God did is he made a way. And then what happens? The Pharaoh's army pursues them into the midst of their salvation. And and it makes me think of what I, I told first service. It's not in the notes here. Many times skeptics and unbelievers will say, why does God send people to hell? And I would say in this text, And you could ask the same question, why did God send Pharaoh into the midst of the sea? And I would say to you, he didn't. He he let them go into the sea. They had all the evidence to see that he was God and that he was for the people that believed him, even when they saved their own livestock by heeding his voice. But here, having seen all the evidence, they still pursued after the Israelites, and that's what destroyed them, not God. God never told the Pharaoh and his army, hey, go into the midst of the sea. It'll be good for you. He never said that. He said, Israelites, go, pass through. So, verse 23, the Egyptian chariots are the equivalent to modern-day tanks. And verse, um, let me see, where did I... Stop reading. Verse 24. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He made them anxious. He took off their chariot wheels. A chariot's no good. It's a paperweight without wheels. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, you got to be, let, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the enemies of God are saying that the Lord fights for Israel, which is what verse 14 said. The Lord will fight for you, right? And so <clears throat> the Egyptian army is troubled by the Lord. Stand still, the Lord will give you victory. He'll deliver you from your enemies. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, He hindered them. He removed their wheels. Uh, Our Lord sends us to fight. Their Lord fights for them. Think about that. That's the testimony of the Egyptians. Our, Our Pharaoh, our Lord, sent us into the battle to fight for him, and yet the Israelites, their Lord fights for them. He protects them. What a contrast. In verse uh, 26, then the Lord said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen." And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptian Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the water's returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as even one of them remained. He completely destroyed their enemies. And I love this because I don't know if you noticed in the background or not, but I have a picture for you of one of those chariot wheels that divers found in the Red Sea within the last 40 years. They found a petrified chariot wheel in the bottom of the Red Sea. So God took the wheel off and it stayed as evidence that our God delivered the Israelites in a very real way. This is not allegory, folks. These events happened in history and they happened for a reason. So verse 29, the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is the second time we're reading this. It's for emphasis. This happened, folks. Verse 30, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Their enemies were dead. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people of God feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. They had a healthy fear of the Lord. They witnessed their enemies dead. They saw their salvation, and their faith, by the way, was made more perfect or pure. Their faith was made more uh, fearful. Now we might not think that we're supposed to fear God, but Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the word means reverential awe. When we see the works of God, it should stop us in our tracks and go, wow. The word awesome is used way too much in our vernacular. The only time we hear the word awesome, it should be about what God has done because he's the only one that's truly awe-inspiring. Reverential awe, to make afraid. We should be afraid of God. He's almighty. And yet, it's not meant to make us so afraid that we don't interact with him. It's meant to be a healthy, reverential respect for him. But what's God's purpose in all of this? Why would he allow his people to be in a dangerous spot? Uh, Romans chapter 5 says this. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He says, and not only that, because that's where most of us stop, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces something that comfort can't produce. Tribulation produces perseverance, the ability to keep going even though it's not easy. Uh, it's one thing to be an easy, go, happy-go-lucky Christian when everything's right, I'll follow Jesus, but when it gets hard, I'm out. I would submit to you that that's not actually following by faith. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character. Did you know God's trying to develop character in you? And character, hope, and our hope, he says in verse 5, does not disappoint because our hope has been refined. It's been made more pure. The things that you trust in that can be taken away, you can't hope in them. And so God's gracious enough to remove them from time to time. But then he says, the hope that we have in Christ has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope will never be taken, never be shaken, and will not disappoint. And in First Peter In chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says, God is blessed, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has made us born again. He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this fact, you greatly rejoice. But now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, that's terrible. Why? He said, if need be. So that the genuineness of your faith... Being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness, the purity of your faith through trials—it's your your faith is made more pure. And so that's why. So the question becomes: Does God put His people in hard places? And I hope after today's passage, you go, "Yep," in the Bible. God historically has placed his beloved, his most precious possession, in harm's way. And you might say, that's terrible parenting. And I would say to you that God puts his people in hard places in order to bring himself the glory. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 56 chronicles. It chronicles the very betrayal of Jesus And I wonder if his disciples, having followed him for various reasons, following Jesus, found themselves in the garden of Gethsemane, knowing full and well that Jesus was a wanted man, that they wanted to kill him. They went to the garden to pray. And I have no doubt that they were trembling and in fear because the Bible says that they slept for sorrow. Many times were hard on them because Jesus said, why don't you come with me and pray for a while? And they're like, okay, and then they fall asleep. And then he comes back and he goes, wait a minute, you can't wait for me with me for an hour? And they fall asleep again. And many times I think we attribute that to, well, they've been traveling and they were tired. But have you ever been so stressed out and pressured that you can only sleep? It's all you have the energy and effort to do. Like when I'm worn out and I'm really afraid, many times I, I'm not the type that stays up all night. I'm the type that goes, if I go to sleep, it'll be better in the morning maybe if I just sleep through this, it'll go away. But I think it's because they were in the valley of death. They knew that something bad was about to happen. And and surely enough, as soon as they were done praying, who showed up with Judas with armed guards ready to take their Savior away, to take their Messiah? They were between a valley between two high rocks, and that's what pi-hahiroth means. That's where the Israelites were. They were at what, what the word means, mouth of freedom. They were at the precipice of their victory. They were right there getting ready to be delivered. They were with the, and, and of course, the disciples were in the same spot. They're like, our deliverer's here. Well, I'm going to be betrayed to sinners and killed. What? Why would you put your, your beloved, Jesus, in harm's way? But in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4, it says, even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And Jesus, when he prayed, he said, Father, I, if there's any way that this cup of suffering can pass for me, not my will though yours be done. But notice that it says in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley, you're with me. He takes us through the trial. So why does God put us, those who have followed Jesus, in harm's way? Why does he allow us to see circumstances and tribulation that cause us to fear? Well, number one, we've talked about it. He's refining our faith. He's purifying our hope so that we won't be disappointed by false hope anymore. But number two, so that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord he's still proclaiming his greatness among the nations that don't know him so why would God allow maybe you or me to be in a hard position number one and I stole this from John Corson I didn't come with this he said it's not about you none of this is about it's, it's not about us This circumstance that you might find yourself in today, it's not about you. It's about God getting glory through you. And no doubt he'll do that if you're Michael Jordan and you're really tall and you start to follow him or if you're Tim Tebow and you want to profess him on the field. And most of us would love that, right? But I guarantee it's not all great for Tim Tebow. I guarantee it's not all good for anybody that would proclaim God in the public arena and be famous. They probably take a lot of flack too. But God wants the world, the nations, individuals that hate him, he wants to reveal himself to them because he's merciful and he's gracious and his desire is that no one would perish but that everyone would come to the knowledge of his son and bow the knee and experience eternal life. He died for it. He, he's willing to give it. Freely you've received. Now go and Freely give. God is glorified when you suffer well. That may not be the feel-good message you're looking for, but it might bring some meaning to some things you've been experiencing. Does the world feel like it's pressing in on you and overwhelming you and trying to get you to quit? (laughs) Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And what the enemy means for evil, God's going to use it to glorify his son. Let him do it. Stand still. Stand still see the salvation of the Lord and praise him all along the way. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage this morning. And I pray that for each one here today, maybe this unlocks something they've been struggling with. We live in a culture and even in a Christian culture that believes the lie that God wants to save us and make everything easy. He's going to deliver us, and he's going to prosper us, and he's going to make things, all the things that we dream it to be. And yet, the passage we study today, it says otherwise. It says that your plan is to glorify your Son. And so, Father, help us to realize this week, even today, that what we're experiencing is not meant for our harm. It's meant for your glory. Truly, truly you love us. Truly, you've blessed us, and you're going to bless the world through us, but that might mean that it might get harder. So Father, help us to endure for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.